Have you ever wondered how a good, kind, and loving God could ever send people to hell? To a place of never-ending pain and torment, subject to unquenchable fire and unrelenting darkness, when as the eternal and all-powerful God, He could guarantee a different, more beneficial outcome for the people He's claimed to make in His image, for people He's claimed to actually care about. Have you wondered this? If you haven't, I assure you that there are others you know in this very room who have. And it's a very good and thoughtful question that deserves a reasonable answer. But let's make sure this one fact doesn't escape our notice. That this question of how a loving God could send people to hell, this question is really a question of privilege and entitlement. It's a question generally asked by people who have just about everything they want and who fear losing what matters to them. This question of how a loving God could send people to hell is not typically the question of people who have already lost everything there is to lose. It is not the question of the 19th century African-American tagged and branded like a head of cattle, laboring on a cotton plantation without either wages or dignity, being kept uneducated and dehumanized, repeatedly used and abused at the whim of the white man's pleasure. This question of how a loving God could send people to hell is not typically the question of the 21st century Syrian refugee whose home was burned, whose spouse was mercilessly tortured before their eyes, whose daughter is now in the harem of some local lord, and whose son was murdered to bring the family name to an end. This question of how a loving God could send people to hell is not typically the question of the East African boy orphaned and kidnapped at age six, trained to shoot with deadly accuracy and forced to commit barbarous deeds against his own people whom he once loved upon pain of death. No, such individuals don't typically wonder how a good and loving God could allow people to go to hell. Those who have suffered terrible things at the hands of evil men are far more likely to ask, is there a God of justice? How long will a just and trustworthy God allow tyrants to get away with unspeakable atrocities? Now our text this week will help us with both questions. We'll see first that the true God is a God of loving justice who defends and raises up the oppressed by destroying evil. And second, we will see that the true God is a God of just love who, even in the act of redemption, 
will not ignore the seat of evil in the hearts of his own people. And by the end, I hope you'll see with me how imperative it is for Jesus, God's chosen one, to embody not only God's justice or God's love, but both at the same time. The main idea this morning is that justice and love are not incompatible opposites, but they must work together to show us what unique sort of God we're dealing with. Let me pray, and then we will see God's loving justice. Father, please help us to see Jesus clearly this morning, the one who is not justice or love, but the one who perfectly embodies both and brings them together. Help us to love you more and to be grateful for the glory of your holy name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, we see God's loving justice in Isaiah chapter 47. Starting at verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour, put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts is his name is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said... I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Stand fast 
in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you've labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. Let me stop there for now. I will explain God's justice according to this chapter of Isaiah in two parts. First, we'll see what tyrants won't get, and second, we'll see why they won't get it. First, in verses 1 through 11, what tyrants won't get is what they want. What tyrants won't get is what they want. And this is because of God's loving redemption of his people. Look at verse 8, which paints the picture of Babylon as a lover of pleasure sitting securely, believing herself to be, as one commentator puts it, superior to all, answerable to none. Verse 8, she says, I am and there is no one besides me, and that quote is repeated in verse 10, I am, and there is no one besides me. And at the end of verse 8, Babylon believes that she will always be prosperous and powerful, symbolized as never becoming a widow and never knowing the loss of children. The picture here is of a tyrannical empire that gets to sit wherever it wants. If it wants more land, it takes it. If it wants more people, it enslaves them. If it wants more in the treasury, it demands the necessary tribute. If it wants to feel secure as though it can be a god, it sits on a powerful, untouchable throne. And Isaiah uses this metaphor of sitting frequently and intentionally in this chapter because where Babylon wishes to sit gives us a picture of the pride, the hubris, the, the self-centered, God-replacing assumption of invulnerability that feeds tyrants. And this desire to sit as a God is described in verses 8 through 11 in order to explain the judgment that Isaiah predicted in verses 1 through 7. Let's go back to verse 1. He says, sit in the dust. Sit on the ground without a throne. Verse 2, you will become like one of your exiled subjects being forced to march naked across fields and rivers. In verse 5, he says, sit in silence. Go into darkness. But you see, Babylon will not get what she wants because in verse 6, Yahweh handed over his people to them, yet Babylon showed no mercy. 
Babylon put heavy burdens on the elderly. In verse 7, she assumed her power would last forever. But in verse 9, these things must come to an end. The fruit of Babylon's oppression must be taken away. Verse 11, disaster must fall upon her. The point, friends, is that tyrants will not get what they want. They will not get free reign to crush people forever. Every regime, every evil regime will someday come to an end. Why? This is where Isaiah goes, secondly in verses 12 through 15. Why? Will they come to an end? Why won't they get free reign to crush people forever? The poem's last line in verse 15 nails it for us. The reason tyrants will never get what they want is to show that there is no one to save them. That they cannot ever save themselves. They cannot be the gods and goddesses they assume themselves to be. Because we were told up in verse 4 that there is only one God and one Redeemer. His name is Yahweh of armies. And so in verse 12, Yahweh dares Babylon to try employing their own enchantment and sorcery to defend against his coming judgment. He watches their puny little efforts to resist him or to stamp out his influence And he says, perhaps you'll be able to succeed. In verse 13, he dares them to see if their own religion and their political advisors can save them. These are the people who claim to predict the future on a monthly basis. These are the ones at the new moons, making known what shall come upon you. Can they stop the Almighty God from what he is about to do? And he laughs at them. Verse 14. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. And then get this. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. In other words, he says a fire is raging. And it is well on its way to consume this earth. To consume this evil generation. And you can't sit warmly and cozily next to this fire. This is not going to be a fireside Christmas this year. It will be a raging wildfire that leaves nothing behind. Such is the necessary judgment that will come if God is to be true to himself. He cannot allow tyrannical rulers and nations to get what they want forever. His justice will be satisfied. Now, how does this apply to those of us here? Let me speak for a moment to anyone here who has not yet become a follower of Jesus Christ. If you are just checking things out, you're looking into Christianity, you are exploring Jesus, and you're trying to figure out what you think about this person named Jesus who claimed to be God, or maybe if you're a young person or a child growing up 
in our community and you're not yet sure if you want to follow Jesus like your parents do, I want you to know we are so glad that you are here. But please don't delay too long in coming to a decision. The fire of God's judgment is still on its way. This earth and the elements will be burned up with fire and all the pride of men and women, of boys and girls who think they can do what they want, when they want, and however they want, this pride will be eradicated once and for all. Such pride and arrogance are thinking that we can be our own gods, we can be in charge of our lives. This is the source of everything that is wrong with the world. And the true God who made heaven and earth will not tolerate it forever. Please don't exalt yourself, lest you become part of what must be brought to an end in this world. And if you think, but I'm not like those tyrants. I haven't murdered any unsuspecting villagers. I haven't raped any young people. I'm not oppressing the poor or laying heavy burdens on the elderly. Well, just, just wait a few minutes and see what God has to say about his own people in the next chapter, where we are going. Because if you think of yourself as a good person and not like the narcissistic tyrants of the world, you need to understand that your concept of a good person is a figment of the imagination not even those who survive the fire of God's fury would dare to consider themselves good people. Justice and love are not incompatible opposites, but they must work together to show us what unique sort of God we're dealing with. And friends, please don't try to avoid this God. Because not only does he judge with perfectly loving justice. But he also saves. And that's where Isaiah goes in the next chapter. Chapter 48, we see God's just love. Now, before I read chapter 48, I should mention where we are right now in the book of Isaiah and why it matters. In chapter 40, Isaiah shifted his focus drastically from the audience of his own day, the 8th century B.C., to a different audience centuries in the future. He probably didn't know exactly when it would take place, but it was revealed to him that his people, the nation of Judah in southern Palestine, would eventually be conquered and carried away in exile to Babylon. And in chapter 40, verse 2, Isaiah recorded two promises to those people who had been captured. And the promises are so guaranteed that Isaiah writes as though God is speaking after the fact. He says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. You see, the promises that God makes to these exiles in Babylon are simply that first, her warfare with Babylon will end, and second, her iniquity before God will be pardoned. Her sin, her transgression will be pardoned. And ever since chapter 40, 
Isaiah has been focusing in this section on that first promise of an end to the warfare with Babylon. He's been showing for eight chapters how the false gods of Babylon cannot save them. How God will raise up a deliverer named Cyrus to conquer Babylon and bring the Jewish people back home. And as we just saw in chapter 47, he's talking about how Babylon itself will come to its final end. So here we are now in chapter 48. We are at the climax of this first promise. The promise of an end to their warfare with Babylon. And this is where God's love blazes brightly. This chapter, chapter 48, also divides into two parts. Divided by the, in verse 1, there's a hear this, O house of Jacob. And in verse 12, he says, listen to me, O Jacob. And those parallel statements divide the passage in half. The first part describes how God treats his people. And the second part explains who he must be to get away with this. So first, how God treats his people. God is bringing about a marvelous deliverance but not with quite as much celebration as we might have hoped for. Let me read verses 1 through 11. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of Yahweh and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. Yahweh of armies is his name. The former things I declared of old. They went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass because I know that you are obstinate. And your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard. Now see all this. And will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago, Before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known, from of old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise... I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. We can summarize what God wants to say through his prophet in these verses in three assertions. First, they don't live up to his name. Second, they don't listen to his voice. And third, therefore, 
God must refine them to preserve his honor. The reasoning of these verses goes like this. I sent you into exile because you were not worthy of my good name. You used my name. You put it on yourselves, but not in truth or right. And in fact, I told you exactly what was going to happen long in advance. I told you what would happen if you broke your treaty with me. I told you what would later happen if you turned back to me. I told you what would happen to your oppressor, Babylon. And I told you all this because, verse 4, I know you are obstinate. Your neck is iron, your forehead is brass. Verse 8, I'm telling you these things now because I knew you would deal treacherously before birth you were rebellious. Yet, I will still rescue you because I chose to put my name on you. Verse 9, I will defer my anger. Verse 10, I won't destroy you but refine you. Not for your sake as though you were entitled to it, but for my own sake, for my own honor and my good name. The point, friends, is that even when God saves, he does so only to be true to his own character. He does not do it because the ones being saved are particularly worthy or deserving of being saved. God's love is a perfectly just love. It does not and it cannot ignore the real problems in the hearts of the people who are being rescued. So how does this apply for us today? Friends, please do not exalt yourself lest you miss the entire point of God's holy rescue. Please do not exalt yourself. You see, the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is not the difference between a good person and a bad person. The difference is instead between a God-exalter and a self-exalter. All that God expects is that we give Him the praise, the worth, and the value that only He deserves. There is no room for people who claim to be Christians to ever think that they are better than other people. Doing so puts us at cross purposes with the God who saves us. This is why American slavery, which was often defended from the Bible in the name of Jesus Christ, was evil. This is why it was evil for churches to remain segregated on the grounds that black people didn't have the capacity for freedom, for worship, or for leadership that white people have. And friends, in State College, in this international community that we find ourselves in today, it remains evil for us to avoid interacting with Middle Easterners or Eastern Europeans or the Asians we find all around town 
or with the homeless folks we see at the Sklo Library trying to get warm in the cold winter. It is evil for us to avoid interacting with these people if we do so out of any felt or implied sense of superiority. So this is how God treats his people. Though he loves and rescues them, he does so in a way that makes clear that they are no different and they are no better than the people who are destroyed under his justice. And he does this for no other reason than to defend his own honor, to glorify his own name. Now, who is he to act in such a self-focused way? What is the character of a God who would operate like this? That's where the second half of the chapter takes us. Who this God really is. Once more, God calls Jacob to hear him out, to listen, and he wants his people, including you and me here today, to hear three things about his identity. First, he is the eternal creator. Verses 12 and 13. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. He is the eternal creator. Second, he is the loving pursuer. Verse 14, assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? Yahweh loves him He shall perform his purpose on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. You see right here he's talking about Cyrus again whom he mentioned in chapters 44 and 45. Yahweh loves Cyrus. Cyrus will perform his purpose and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord Yahweh has sent me and his spirit. So you see, the Lord is the loving pursuer who will enact his purposes to rescue his people. And he has called Cyrus for this very purpose to make this happen. And the Lord pursues those people to bring an end to the Jews' warfare with Babylon. So second, he is the loving pursuer. But third... He is the Holy Redeemer. 17 to 22. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am Yahweh your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, Yahweh has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. 
friends, this God is like no other God. He rescues wicked people who deserve no peace. Those who have not listened to his commandments, but he keeps his promise to make this happen. He is true to himself. Verse 20, he calls them out of Babylon once and for all. So we see that even in his love, God does not act without justice. In the act of loving and rescuing his people, he still justly condemns them for their actions and their rebellion. What we must see in this text today is that justice and love are not incompatible opposites, but they must work together to show us what unique sort of God is worth our trust and is not worth avoiding. Now we'll have plenty of opportunity in the rest of Isaiah to further unpack the character of this God as he lays it out in this last section. Because from this point, Israel's warfare with Babylon is over. And God now turns to the second of his promises from chapter 40, verse 2. He now must show how can it be possible for their iniquity, their sin before God to be pardoned. Let me give you a preview of where Isaiah goes. The only way this can be possible is for God to be not just or loving, but for him to be both. He must find a way to exact justice on the sins of his people while simultaneously extending his love to rescue them. His servant Cyrus will succeed at the task for which he was appointed to, to end their warfare with Babylon, but Cyrus could never make this greater deliverance, this pardoning of iniquity to take place. And so another servant will now come on stage in the very next chapter to take on this crucial role. I believe he peeks his head out at the end of verse 16 in chapter 48. He just pokes around the corner when he says, and now the Lord Yahweh has sent me and his spirit. We'll get to know this servant who is filled with the spirit of God for this purpose. We'll get to know him much better in the next part of Isaiah. And of course, long after Isaiah's day, we would learn his name is Jesus. Only Jesus is able to embody both God's undying love and God's uncompromising justice. But you'll have to come back over the next few weeks to see exactly how this works out. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would please send Jesus back quickly to bring peace and to make an end of evil and suffering in this world. We long for your justice. Lord, not because we are any better than those who will be destroyed by your justice, but because we know your justice was already executed on the cross of Christ. On our behalf, we trust in him. 
and help us to grow as the people upon whom you have set your love, not for anything in us, but for the sake of your own name. Help us never to condescend looking down on others, but help us to proclaim this message of a holy God who pursues his purposes and redeems his unworthy people. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We bow before you. You are our king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.